When the life sciences industry gathers in San Francisco for the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference Week, will you be ready? It's important you're able to take advantage of all the opportunities. Don't get left behind. Big 3 Bio has created BioWeek SF, an online resource that guides you through event schedules, receptions, meeting space information, and consulting services. It provides exclusive savings and more to help attendees make the most of their J.P. Morgan week. Go to BioWeekSF.com for more information. That's BioWeekSF.com. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. It's that time of year when we begin to look back and think ahead. Starting with this week's interview, we begin a three-part review preview series to discuss the year in biotech and what to look for in 2018. In 2017, there were exciting developments in the area of immuno-oncology with the approval of the first CAR-T therapies and Gilead's acquisition of Kite Pharma. As the American, as we approached the, as we approached the finish line, Investors got to view data from a range of studies at the American Society of Hematology meeting in Atlanta, setting the stage for 2018, when data from studies looking at combinations of immunotherapies will be closely watched. We spoke to Brad Lancar, CEO of Lancar Investments, about the state of immunotherapies, what caught his attention at the ASH meeting, and what he'll be watching in 2018. An editor's note, this interview was conducted prior to Spark Therapeutics, winning approval for its gene therapy, Luxturna. Brad, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me back. We're going to talk about the just-concluded American Society of Hematology meeting in Atlanta, the year in cancer immunotherapies, and what's ahead in 2018. But let's start with ASH, which you attended. My sense was there was a lot more activity and interest in ASH this year than, than in past years because of what's happened with gene and cell therapies. Is that my imagination, or was this a window into the state of innovation and therapeutics more broadly right now? No, it's definitely not your imagination. I mean, those were the two big topics that were on everyone's mind. And I would just say in general, I think every year ASH becomes more important. You know, even in the cancer space, that I follow most closely, uh, it's becoming a second number two behind ASCO, I think. And that's just because those CAR-T therapies are having such a dramatic impact in blood cancers. And this is often the place where some of the most intriguing data has been presented. So for sure, it's uh, I think it's the most exciting um, and perhaps relevant conference going on right now. So been a lot of fun to follow it over these last few years. Any surprises at ASH this year? I think that the the gene therapies and hemophilia just really, uh, everyone was expecting good data, but it was just so dramatically 
interesting. Uh, the company that I think had the best data was BioMarin, which, you know, maybe we should say for full disclosure, you, you know very well. They uh, published some long-term data in severe hemophilia A in conjunction with the, the conference in the New England Journal of Medicine. And they showed, you know, patients that were out over a year producing almost 50% um, normal of uh, factor eight levels. And that's just amazing. They had zero bleeds and they used, uh, you know, zero, they needed uh, zero uh, infusions of the traditional medicines. And uh, even there was an opinion piece that was published along with that in, in uh, New England Journal of Medicine. And the title was A Cure for Hemophilia within reach and you normally go to a journal like that for like a dose of like reality or, or to, you know, to turn things down a notch. And that was just an amazing headline to, to see um, and, and to see the data at the conference. And it's just exciting to know that that type of therapy has the chance to potentially be curative. And, you know, companies like that are already starting pivotal trials. So this is not, um, you know, this this is not something that it, that potentially is many years away. This, um, if what we see in these pivotal trials looks like the data we're seeing in these initial patients, these are therapies that might be approvable um, within a year or two. And that's amazing to think how quickly this has come about. What about themes from Ash this year? Anything emerge as a, a theme that you'll be thinking about and looking into the next year with? Well, you know, I, I think like the you know the other uh, the other thing you mentioned, CAR T in, in the cancer space. I think the biggest theme going on right there is we've just had the first couple of approvals. So Novartis has a CAR T therapy, Imraya approved in pediatric ALL, and Gilead um, has Yescarta in aggressive NHL. So. We've just seen the very first approvals, and I would call that CAR-T, CAR-T version 1.0. You know, every single day we're learning about, you know, why patients are responding or why toxicities are happening. And I think that um, there's a lot of people out there working on what I would call uh, CAR-T version 2.0, whether that's looking for different antigens or um, changing the composition of the product so that it might be uh, safer or more efficacious. Um, so that's something that I'm watching for 2018 is just how the year, just how that field progresses and we move off of these, you know, kind of this foundational version 1.0 of these therapies. And I thought some of the most interesting data in that space um, at this year's ASH was in multiple myeloma using targeting the BCMA antigen. The leader in this uh, is a company called Bluebird, who's partnered with Celgene. And uh, they had some, some great data using that BCMA, CAR-T, and multiple myeloma. They showed response rates in the 90% range. And uh, for patients who had received kind of an active dose, uh, a little over half of them saw a complete response. Um, and that's just terrific. And it's very meaningful because so far these CAR T treatments have only worked it, uh, against the target uh, called CD19. So 
their use so far has been very limited in certain types of leukemias and lymphomas. And the fact that they're starting to work in something other than CD19, so in this case BCMA, is very meaningful and important uh, because it just it it implies that the utility of this type of approach, these cellular therapies, might be a lot wider than some bearish critics would suggest. So that BCMA data, I think, was um, you know perhaps you know of top importance at this year's ASH. So you had Celgene and Bluebird, you had Biomarin. Were there other winners you'd say emerged from from ASH this year? Uh, another. Very important um, study that was presented. Uh, Gilead presented long-term data from from their uh, study called Zuma One, which is what this was, what their Yescarda was approved for, an aggressive NHL. And, um, the thing that another thing that's kind of amazing about these cellular therapies is they've been developed so quickly, and the responses have been so dramatic that they've been approved. Uh, you know, just amazingly fast compared to what we're used to in drug development. And we don't even know at this point what the long-term efficacy or safety of these drugs is. Um, and so Gilead presented data from the SUMA-1 study for patients that had a, a median follow-up of about 15 months. And number one, the remission rates remained high. Um, so there, uh, there was like a 40% complete remission rate, which is right in line with the, the six-month data. In fact, it was actually like a hair better than the six-month data that they got the therapy approved on. And so that's really important. Um, these are expensive therapies. Um, and so, uh, you know, if, if you've seen a big drop-off and a lot of relapses, uh, that would have been very disappointing. Um, and so this was really the first company that in a major registrational pivotal trial like that has presented long-term data. So, number one, that was a big positive for Gilead from a commercial standpoint because it argues for the value of the treatment. But number two, it's just kind of important for the entire field because it, it, it illustrated that once patients go into remission or have a response from these treatments, after a certain number of months, those responses tend to stay durable. That was always a hypothesis that we had, um, but it's never really been technically proven, and data like this will go a long way uh, towards showing that. Anyone get beat up at ASH this year? Any any disappointments? Well, um, you know, one thing, one thing we saw going back to those gene therapies, uh, one thing we've seen is that not, they're not all the same. Um, so there was a competitor, Spark Therapeutics, um, that had hemophilia A data, just like Biomarin did. And Biomarin, uh, the, the, the reason why they were such a big uh, winner is because their data was almost entirely consistent. Um, and uh, Spark's the individual patients sh showed responses that were a lot more variable. And so its stock kind of crashed because uh, hemophilia A is such a, a big market opportunity for these gene therapies. Um, and so one thing we learned uh, is that, it, you know, a lot of people are working on this. I think there's seven or eight companies that have 
uh, hemophilia gene therapy programs. Um, but one thing, uh, at least those two companies kind of showed, is that not all programs are the same. And, you know, there's, you know, different vectors that you can use and different approaches and doses and things like that. And you can see results that are pretty dramatically different. And the important thing for gene therapy is, you know, it's going to be a very expensive and complicated therapy to potentially roll out commercially one day. And so you need good, consistent, no-doubt results. And in this case, one company showed that, and that's BioMarin, and another one kind of stumbled, and that's Spark. Um, and uh, so I think that was one takeaway from this conference. And I want to count out Spark. Uh, one, one thing that I've observed about Ash uh, particularly is there's usually a great company that crashes every year. Two years ago, it was uh, Bluebird. Um, they had some um, some uh, sickle cell disease data that wasn't so great, and they bounced back in a major way two years later. A year ago, it was Juno. They had a product, JCAR-15, that used a different co-stimulatory domain than they're using now um, that had a lot of problems. And so it was crashing a year ago, and it's bounced back as well. And Spark is going to be a leader in gene therapy, um, whether they get market share in hemophilia or not um, is uh, you know, unclear, but they they will be a leader in this gene therapy space that's going to play out over a decade or two. So I wouldn't be surprised if we are talking this time next year if they've already bounced back. Yeah, it's a great company. One of the things we want to do with you is, is take a look back at the urine immunotherapies and, and look ahead. But in August, the FDA approved the CAR-T therapy. Kimraya held as the first gene therapy to come to market in the United States. This is Novartis's CAR-T therapy for acute lymphoblastic leukemia. FDA, Scott, FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb at the time said, we're entering a new frontier in medical innovation. How big a milestone do you think this is? I think it's, you know, like, I think it's important because we're gradually drifting away from, like, a pill in a bottle uh, type medicine. You know, these are really almost procedures um, than they are drugs. And it technically was the first ever quote-unquote gene therapy approved um, in the United States. Now, there's actually a lot of people in our field that aren't, aren't very thr thrilled with that use of the word gene therapy for CAR-T, although um, FDA seems to be sticking with it. But it's important because... Um, this is a whole new way of treating medicine, number one. And the types of results that we're seeing with these approaches are dramatic. Uh, you know, especially in cancer, over previous decades, a lot of gains have been very incremental. You know, one a drug might come out and uh, in, uh, it, it extend patients' lives for an average of a few months, and then another one might come out and it might be a few months more. And, over a very long period of time, that added up to a lot um, for many different cancers. But as it was happening, it felt very gradual. These cell therapies are not gradual. What the first approval that Novartis had for pediatric ALL, they had an 83% complete remission rate at three months. For little children who are what we call relapse refractory, which is a fancy way of saying untreatable. Um, so when you take a 
a group of patients with untreatable disease and you see something like an 83% uh, complete remission rate initially, that's very special. And, and I, I think that the amount of enthusiasm uh, is warranted um, uh, for these types of therapies because for the things that they're working in, uh, they really are showing spectacular results. And it's important to know that this is day one of this. this these are just the very first approvals. And as I mentioned earlier, I, you know, I view these as version 1.0 of these therapies. And version 2.0 and 3.0 and 4.0 uh, might even look a lot better, which uh, is very exciting. In fact, one way I like to illustrate this, there was a big acquisition in this space um, in August. So Gilead bought Kite Pharma for $12 billion. And in the press release, when they announced that deal, Gilead CEO John Milligan used a very interesting uh, phrase. He said, we view these therapies as the cornerstone of treating cancer going forward. And that's a very bold and aggressive thing to say. I agree with him, and I think he's right. But the reason it's such an, a, an aggressive thing to say is because right now we have two approvals in some very small niche cancers uh, for which there's not very many patients. So if you take that as a starting point and you draw a line to what he's saying, that these cellular therapies might be the cornerstone of treating cancer one day, that's going to be very exciting to watch unfold and very dramatic and disruptive um, to our business. So I hope he's right. It's going to be a lot of fun to, to follow the progress of these therapies. And, and Ash was actually a good example of this. I went to an analyst event for that company, Bluebird, who had the um, BCMA CAR-T data and multiple myeloma, and with their partner Celgene, they're already talking about how to move this up into earlier lines of treatment, because you initially use it in those patients with, uh, you know, in the most dire need who are kind of refractory and untreatable, and they're already talking about moving this up into earlier lines of, of treatment, and so you're starting to see the initial glimmers of how this can become a cornerstone, just like Gilead uh, said when they bought Kite earlier this year. Well, let me ask you about the Gilead acquisition. This was a much-anticipated acquisition. People were waiting to see Gilead buy something. It's it's an exciting drug, but just yesterday, Bloomberg reported only five patients have been treated and, and reimbursement issues are hurting adoption. Are market challenges going to outside outsize the clinical challenges here? I I think there's a healthy debate on this. I would not count out Gilead. Um, so I, I, you know, when anything is new like this, um, it takes the payers a little bit of time to figure it out. But these therapies are curative for patients who desperately need them, and usually when that's the case, um, all of the payers and providers and just the market in general figure out a way to get these therapies to patients. Now, if this was something else, if this was an incremental improvement, you know, there was a, a famous cancer vaccine um, years ago that had a, you know, a median uh, uh, extended life, a, a median of four months with prostate cancer. If, if you have something like that, um, 
the commercial situation becomes a little more dicey. But the difference here with CAR-T is that this is potentially a curative therapy for patients who really need it. And uh, when you have something like that, usually the market finds a way. I, the, I saw that same Bloomberg story, and one of the things that I thought was really sad about it is it basically implied that the only missing ingredient to straightening all of that out is a Medicare payment code. Um, so, number one, I you know I think it's uh, I'm sure it's more complicated than that, but still, I think that's a pretty disappointing thing. Um, and number two, if it's I think they'll eventually get it straightened out, and, and it sounds like the the solution to the problem is not you know, overly complicated. So I have faith that it'll get worked out. And, um, you know, Gilead's a smart company. I can assure you they looked at this very closely. And and I don't think they just bought this, you know, for a year or two rollout. You know, this is um, a platform that they're buying. And I think that this is an acquisition that's going to um, be a big part of their business for many years, if not decades. So, you know, a little, you know, a little uh, stumbling blocks over the first few months. Um, I don't think it's surprising or you know necessarily too alarming. There's a, a remarkable amount of innovation and activity going on right now in the immunotherapy space. The Cancer Research Institute recently reported more than 2,000 immunotherapies are in development. One issue that's emerging, though, is the industry is going to face a challenge enrolling the patients that will need for clinical trials. Are you seeing this impacting development yet? Is this a concern? Yeah, so I would say a couple of things um, about that. So first of all, it's really important to know, uh, I mean, we know this in our industry, but I think more for lay people uh, who see headlines like that, it's really important to know that immunotherapy is not one thing. You know, there's checkpoint inhibitors, and we're talking, you know, today about CAR-T and oncolytic viruses, vaccines. There's a lot of different things. And what that report is mostly talking about is combination trials using checkpoints. So we already know that checkpoint inhibitors, specifically PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibitors, work well in, you know, about a dozen cancers, and they will be the foundation of care in various things like melanoma and lung cancer and bladder cancer. And in an effort to get the response rates up, um, we're in in a phase, right, you know, kind of phase one was to to learn where they work in monotherapy and to see how many patients they're working for and why they might be working for those patients. So now that we're kind of um, well along in that and we've collected data, the next stage that we're in right now is trying to boost all of those numbers using combinations. And there's over a 1,000 combination studies going on right now, as you just pointed out. And um, I think in terms of, like, patient recruitment, it is very difficult right now to find PD-1 or PD-L1 naive patients. I've seen a lot of companies... In the industry have to go overseas to find um, patients like that. So for sure, that's having um, one effect on all of this. I think that all of these trials are a good thing. I know there's 
some criticism that maybe there are too many trials and like the scientific rigor of some of them is not what they should be. Um, I, I think that overall, uh, you know, I, I think that these PD1s are so important that it's, it's in, it's, uh, you know, we should leave no stone unturned. Um, and I think that we're going to learn a lot from these trials. And I do think there's going to be winning combinations that come about because of these. And, you know, another thing, for example, that um, is important is uh, when patients uh, participate in clinical trials, their care is usually free. It, you know, they're getting these expensive PDL one drugs, um, you know, for free with really first-rate care um, in these centers that are conducting these trials. So I, I think that we're going to learn a lot. I think we're going to see successful combinations, and I think that the next round uh, of trials, kind of version three of this, is going to be even better. So I think we're going to make a lot of progress for patients through all of this work that's being done. It's just a little chaotic right now due to the sheer number of these studies that's going on, but once we see some some winners emerge, I, I think it'll all be worth it for sure. Any bet on whether it's going to be the combinations that use the pdl ones or PD-1s with other immunotherapies or with more conventional cancer therapies that will have the biggest impact? Well, right now, the winner is the latter. Um, you know, like Roche, for example, just had success in lung cancer combining PD-1 with, you know, VEGF inhibitor and Avastin. And Merck in lung cancer has had some good preliminary data um, combining PD-1 with, um, you know, uh, the traditional chemotherapy. So I think that that's, those are going to be the bar for the immunotherapy-immunotherapy combinations to overcome. I do think we'll see successes um, in that area. Um, it's just a little too early, and we haven't seen any yet. So my money would be on some of these novel immunotherapy immunotherapy combinations, um, but but I think they're gonna. I don't think we'll see the winners for those at least until um, closer to the summer of 2018, or, or maybe even a little beyond that. Um, and until that happens, those traditional combinations, especially for the harder to treat cancers, will definitely be the bar. Um, that uh, that others have to overcome in the future. Well, earlier this month, you tweeted your disappointment on two points in, in the activity this year. One was lack of M&A activity. Do, do you see the tax bill? Should it pass unleashing that? And are there any fat targets in the immunoecology space you'd be watching? Well, there's. I think there's two things. I think where the tax bill comes in is that would impact mega mergers. So, for example, like one possible combination that uh, has been rumored for a long time is maybe somebody like Pfizer would buy Bristol Myers because um, Pfizer's PD1 program hasn't been so hot. It would take tax reform for a deal like that to happen. So that's one thing. Um, there's another class of deals that I think absolutely has to happen. I, I'm of the opinion that big companies um, are in big trouble right now because they've relied on a lot of artificial things for revenue growth over previous years, whether that's 
drug price increases or inversions or some other type of financial engineering, uh, a lot of big companies like Celgene and Amgen, uh, you know, those Goliaths of the world have really relied on those things for their revenue growth, and that's coming to an end. Um, and so, and I think that's a good thing. This industry, I think, realizes now that it has to get back to basics, and all of the innovation, in my opinion, is happening in, you know, these small biotech companies. And this Gilead Kite deal was a perfect illustration of that. It, you know, Kite basically went from zero to $12 billion in just a few years. That's really where all of, all of this innovation um, is taking place. And so these companies that are no longer able to grow their revenue doing artificial things are in big trouble. And... I think they have to, I think there's two waves of smaller M&A that's going to happen. Number one, I think anything that has um, a, a newly approved drug or is very close to the finish line is in the crosshairs right now. So it wasn't surprising to see Gilead buy a company like Kite because that'll instantaneously give them revenue growth. And I think a lot of other co companies are in that same position, that they have to buy revenue growth. So I think you're going to see a big round next year of all the companies that have new products um, get bought out. So there's, you know, PARP inhibitor companies that have had, you know, some approvals lately, um, things like that, where the acquirer immediately inherits um, a new, like, product that will give them revenue growth. I think that's round one of what will happen. And then once those companies are kind of accounted for, I think we'll see a lot more early stage deals. And so none of that, I don't think, is really reliant on, um, you know, tax reform because that just has to happen for business reasons anyway. And, you know, those usually aren't too expensive that these companies can't do them. So, I think that tax reform really more affects those mega deals. Um, uh, so, you know, we'll have to see if that happens. And I think that the, these other things that I'm talking about are going to happen, whether there's tax reform or not, because um, those larger companies are kind of in a desperate spot right now and need to do them. The other thing you pointed to was the lack of generalist participation. Is, is there a bullish case to make for the fact that given when, Generalist investors drive biotech stocks that may be a signal of a topper. Do you think that's what's needed to, to drive the market forward here? I, I, I think it would be helpful. So last year, we lost about $8 billion, um, in outflows in this sector. And this year, during the beginning half of the year, things looked promising. Um, we were almost at plus $2 billion. But over the last couple of months, we've lost all of that. And essentially flat, and that's really disappointing because your average uh, biotech stock, like the NASDAQ Biotech Index, is up about 20%, but others are even doing better than that. Um, and so biotech has had a nice year, um, and we haven't seen any inflows, um, you know, due to that, and that's pretty disappointing. And so you know, my worry is, well, what if we have a bad year next year? Then, you know, maybe we'll, we'll see a lot more outflows or something. So I would like to see those numbers turn around. And um, I, I think that the generalist money, you're right, like it can go overboard. But I do think it can 
kind of turn a flat year good and a good year great. Um, and so I think we're in a place right now where uh, it's kind of needed and would be welcome. So I would love to see that again. Those, those for sure are the two biggest missing ingredients, um, M&A and, and that generalist participation. And they're actually related. Um, Biotech had a great couple of months starting at the end of August when that Gilead deal uh, happened because when something like that happens, especially um, a transaction as high profile as that one, everybody sees it and thinks they know what the next you know small biotech company will be that gets bought out. So they uh, it kind of lifts all boat all boats and attracts more money into the sector. So hopefully, hopefully we'll see a combination of both of those two things happen next year because I think they are highly related. So what are you going to be watching in 2018 in the immuno-oncology space, and, and what kind of a year do you expect? Well, there's two mega trials that are going to read out in the early part of next year that will have a, a huge impact on the entire immunotherapy space, especially this uh, checkpoint um, uh, phase that we're going through. So. Bristol-Myers-Squibb has a big study in first-line advanced lung cancer called um, Checkmate 227. And that's important because, you know, a year ago they had a monotherapy study of of Opdivo in first-line lung cancer that failed, and that put Merck um, into the lead. And that's the largest commercial opportunity for these drugs right now. So... Their main approach in that study is combining um, Opdivo, which is a PD-1, with uh, Yervoy, which is a CTLA-4. So those are two classic immunotherapy drugs. So that'll be one instance where we learn if the IO plus IO combination um, is competitive or better than IO plus chemotherapy. And they actually do have some arms of that trial um, that are studying um, PD-1 um, and chemotherapy. So that'll be a big thing just because there's so much on the line um, in that first-line lung cancer space and also because Bristol is such a, a big player. That'll impact everybody um, because everybody's focused on first-line lung cancer. Another study that's hugely important is Insight and Merck have a... Um, a study combining Merck's uh, Keytruda with uh, a drug that Insight has called Epicatastat, which is another type of checkpoint inhibitor that targets a pathway called IDO. And that's hugely important because um, that CTLA-4 that that Bristol is using as their second immunotherapy in the combination um, is, is a I think a little too toxic um, to be widely used. So uh, people are looking for other things to work in combination with PD-1 and probably the leading candidate right now is IDO. Amazingly, um, Insight's market cap is about $25 billion today. And depending on who you ask, this drug Epicatastat has been valued at upwards of $10 billion already, which is amazing because... There's no randomized uh, data that we've seen so far. There's been very small um, uh, open-label studies combining it with um, Keytruda and, you know, melanoma, lung cancer, and bladder cancer and things. So 
there's reasons to be optimistic about it, but it's it's far from being proven. And so this uh, melanoma study will be the first big phase three trial uh, uh, for those those two drugs used in combination. So it'll be important not just for melanoma, but all of the other things that um, PD-1 and IDO are being combined um, for use in. So that's going to be a big study um, to, you know, major large companies um, with, you know, a big phase three study early next year. So we'll be watching that. And then, uh, you know, the the CAR-T space, um, just kind of like we were following along at, um, at ASH this year, I, I just want to see some of these kind of version 2.0 improvements um, and, and see how they work um, over the course of the year. And there's a handful of things that people are doing. There's studies right now combining checkpoints with, with CAR-T or doing what we call armored cars, attaching a cytokine um, to those T-cells and um, another thing is the the allogeneic approach, where you're you're using cells from donors to try to have an off the shelf uh, CAR T that we'll see a lot more data from next year. So, just in general, um, looking for improvements and to see that you know the CAR T therapies be used in more cancers and and to boost their efficacy in the cancers that they're already being used for. Brad Lokar, CEO of Lonkar Investments. Brad, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.